Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. I am really excited to share this interview with Sandra Bishop. Sandra is the founder, CEO, and clinical director of Basics ABA Therapy and is really passionate about trauma-informed ABA. In this episode, Sandra breaks down what trauma-informed ABA is and why this is so essential and ethical to move towards within our strategies and interventions. She explains how trauma can be a setting event. And if you don't know what a setting event is, she explains what setting events and are and why these are so so important to plan within our programming. There is lots to learn from in this interview and Sandra shares her website where she has all kinds of great courses. So if you are interested in learning more, definitely check that out. So let's go ahead and jump in and learn all about trauma-informed ABA. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us. I am super excited to be here. So this is a topic that I've been really interested in and I know a lot of BCBAs and teachers becoming BCBAs in my audience have been asking more and more about. So today we're going to talk about trauma-informed ABA. So if you were to kind of give, you know, the elevator pitch or big picture overview and someone asks you like, what's trauma-informed ABA? How, how do you explain that? So I think trauma-informed ABA can be um, nailed down to describing it as being kind, <laughs> <laughs> I think like that's, that's the number one word is it's about kindness. Um, I think it's about reapproaching um, ABA as look as instead of just looking at it from the antecedent behavior consequence and function is looking at 
what happens in these these setting events? What is potential triggers that can affect that ABC um, chain? Mm-hmm. And addressing those and looking at trauma events, looking at those things just like we would a medical condition. Um, yeah. And then also addressing our consequence inter- interventions so they're not just based off of the function, but that we're also treating the students that we're working with like like kids, like people, like humans. And so like a, an easy example, right, is a kid sees a cookie, he jumps up and down and screams, right? He, he Traditionally, he gets the cookie, right? The function's access to the cookie. And so instead of our intervention just being don't give him the cookie and teaching him to say cookie when he's having that difficult moment, right? Our, our trauma informed intervention can also be saying, man, dude, this sucks that you can't have a cookie. I'm sorry, dude. It can be offering, letting his mom give him a hug instead of telling mom she's got to go upstairs because she's a distraction. Yes. (laughs) Right. Cause kids are sad. They want their mom. Right. It's, it's bummer when you can't have a cookie when you want one. Yeah. And that like ABA gets and any behaviorism, right. Even in our classrooms, we get so stuck in the idea that we might accidentally reinforce a behavior that we forget that like we can just be kind. And if we accidentally teach a kid that if they're sad, they'll get a hug. We can look at the data and we can address it then. Yeah. And that those two things can can coexist, that we can still think about things behavior analytically and oh, this might reinforce a negative behavior, but also maybe that's sometimes okay. And that like we can live in, in both worlds at the same time. Exactly. And so we still don't want to give him a cookie if he hits you, but it's fine to say man, please don't hit me. Yeah. And I'm sorry you're sad. Yeah. And I'm still not going to get me a cookie because you hit me. Yeah. <laughs> and why Why is like a field, you know, and even beyond ABA, but even within within classrooms where maybe they're using some of these strategies and not knowing, you know, the, the fancy names for it, why is this important to kind of really shift our 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 practice this way? Why Why is this essential and why is this ethical? Well, so, I mean, I think for one thing, we don't know what the history is of the students we work with always. Um, So any student we work with could have had a like more traditional setting event, right? So this kid who's tangerine about a cookie could have experienced early food deprivation and we don't know about that, right? And so by removing a cookie, by just, you know, staring at him while he cries and expecting him to say cookie, we can be reinforcing the idea that he's not going to get food. Um, So that's the like super basic one. Um, But also, you know, all anybody over the age of two right now in March of 2020 experienced a trauma event when things went on lockdown for COVID. Yeah. Right. All of us BCBAs kids we work with lost their schools their grandparents access to them because we isolated from them. People died. They got told that they were going to die if they went outside. And so all of the students we worked with experienced a trauma event. Now it doesn't mean that they were traumatized by it because people can 
experience an event and not have an adverse reaction, but they were exposed to the event. And I think also, if you think about autism being a communication disorder, um, you know, one of the definitions of early neglect is babies and young children communicating their needs and them not being met. And so even with very attentive parents, it's possible that those children experience the effects of early neglect if they were trying to communicate things and those needs weren't met. And so I think that applying these concepts to our students and treating them like a medical condition is is within our ethical requirements, just the same as if a student had migraines or diabetes, we wouldn't ignore that because if they were crying because they had a headache, we wouldn't withhold their medication because they didn't say Advil, please. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm happy you brought up that, you know, we don't always know because I've been kind of thinking about that a lot lately too, that like even if you get this like six-inch file when you get a new student or new client, like here's their whole case history, like first of all, that's never going to be complete, but like you don't know what happened like last weekend, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe something really bad happened on Friday and then it's Monday at school. Like we we just never know and why not default to these strategies? Like there's, why not, you know? Yeah. I mean, even like requesting breaks, like we have, all students can have unlimited breaks. And when I write behavior plans for schools, I put in unlimited breaks and people become really nervous about it. And teachers really become really nervous about it. ABA, like practitioners also, BCBAs, all that, everybody gets nervous, but particularly in schools. Um, there's a lot of pushback, right? Because kids have to do math. Kids have to meet their academic standards. Um, But I find that when kids have unlimited access to breaks, right, it reduces that power struggle. It gives everybody an out. Um, Kids do not take take breaks the entire day. Um, If they do, they end up being sick. There ends up being something we find out has happens. Um, Or we're doing something wrong and we find that out. Yeah. Um, And that's an example of it is that we realize afterwards that like, oh my goodness, this kid had COVID. Yeah. (laughs) I am so glad we didn't make this kid cry. Yeah. All session because he just tested positive for COVID. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm have, that's a great example too. Cause I, I talk about that a lot with teachers and you know, I was a T I consider myself like a teacher first BCBA second. Cause I became a BCBA while in the classroom and, and teachers do get nervous about that. Like I, you know, like, okay, we're teaching this replacement behavior every single time they use it. Yep. They get the break, they get the iPad, they get the attention. It's going to be great. And they're like, every time, every time forever, not forever. And just let's, let's get some buy-in or let's, let's let them know that like breaks are available but it's, you're kind of ingrained as a teacher into this, like, teacher, we are here to work, and this is the work we have to do, and that's it. And we can become a little inflexible sometimes. Yeah, and it's reasonable. Teachers have a lot of pressure to yeah. keep the students in their seats, doing their work. Um, and it's not a, like, you know, I, I think you know this, right? It's not a flaw in teachers. Um it's because of the expectations that are put there. But I think what I remind them is that the kid's not doing the work now. Yeah. Right? They're laying on the floor. They're kicking. They're running in circles. They're leaving the classroom. They're distracted. Right. Mm-hmm. And that this is giving away that it's effective. Yeah. Right. It's allowing it to be peaceful and calm 
and, and happy, right? And that it gives us a way to let the student have some control, let them reset, and then they'll come back. And again, if they don't come back, then it lets us know that there is a problem and we need to figure out what that problem is. You know, how do you, what's your advice? I've had a lot of, I have experienced this in a lot of teachers' asses too about kids that sleep in class a lot. And like, you know, I've had teachers be like, well, shouldn't I just wake them up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds brutal. If if you are so tired that you are falling asleep in the middle of class, like someone forcing me to wake up, I would be a grouch. Um, So what advice do you have on that, that kids that are like chronically falling asleep? Because I was kind of thinking about that as you're talking about getting sick and COVID and all this stuff. So I think that's really complicated. I actually, um, you know, I think the first line, right, is to talk to parents Mm-hmm. and see if we can talk to parents about what's happening, talk about sleep hygiene, things like that. Um, I actually uh, don't recommend having kids sleep at school. I recommend keeping them awake, awake because if kids are napping during the day, they're not going to sleep at night. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I, um, I, I discourage letting kids sleep during the day. Um, again, though, it's going to be a case by case basis. And, you know, if they're staying up till three o'clock in the morning, because, you know, maybe a parent is, you know, working a graveyard shift, and they're picking up their kid at the daycare provider at three o'clock in the morning, and that's how their transition is going, right, then things are going to be different. But all things being equal, if the kid is sleeping for three hours at school, and then they can't go to sleep at night, then we're perpetuating a cycle and we're actually making things worse. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, I was just curious because I was thinking that way when you're talking about kids, you know, then being sick and oftentimes that like sleep behavior comes along with that. So that was just yeah. a little detour. But um, when we're talking about these, this, this, this thing, this theory that I've, that I've, this model that I've come up with, which is in the trauma handbook that I have in the, the, um, the webinars that I do. And actually I'm starting a, a clinical um, trauma series um, in two weeks. Um, that's a four week series that goes through creating a treatment plan. We do look at being tired as a setting event. Okay. As something that is involved in the ABC chain, right? So if you're tired, it's going to make it more likely that you're going to engage in your behaviors, right? So if you think about any toddler, right? If you have a toddler and they haven't slept, right? And you ask them to put their shoes on (laughs) and they fall out, right? Very behavioral turn, right? They fall out because you've asked them to put their shoes on. Well, you know, you could do the most intense behavior intervention on putting on shoes and it's going to be a waste of your life, right? (laughs) You just manage sleep, (laughs) give them a nap and they'll put their shoes on, right? And so if being tired is your setting event, then you really do need to figure out a way to manage that. And managing that may be things like, all right, let's make sure they have a really big, strong breakfast. Yeah. Right. Because we know that having food gives you energy. Right. Let's make sure we have really good recess and movement during the day because that's going to increase endorphins. Right. So targeting things that help make somebody wake up, have energy when they're sleepy. And then obviously helping parents and supporting parents with nighttime routines and things like that. Cause sometimes parents just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great suggestions. 
So can you explain a little bit more about that and give some context to the phrase setting event for those that aren't familiar with it? And then we can talk about trauma as a setting event. Yeah, absolutely. So a setting event is something that makes a antecedent, right? So the thing that happens behavior more or less likely to cause a behavior. So if I am um, going to, um, my, my behavior is that I am going to um, uh, make myself a quesadilla, right? So my antecedent is that um, I notice that it is um, 12 o'clock, right? Notice it's 12 o'clock, so it's lunchtime. And I my behavior is going to no, make the quesadilla, and eat it, right? Or, right, I'm gonna have lunch. And my consequence is I eat this delicious food, right? The food is delicious, right? It's in my belly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a setting event that could make it more likely that I make a delicious quesadilla and eat it is that I skip breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. If I skip breakfast, I am gonna be hungry. I'm gonna be more likely to have my delicious quesadilla. A setting event that would make it less likely that I'm going to do that is if I just had Thanksgiving (laughs) food, right? Then it's going to be lunchtime and I'm not going to be wanting to eat a quesadilla. Okay. Right. Or I have the flu, right? Or I have a setting event that I'm lactose intolerant. Then it being noon doesn't matter because I'm not going to eat a quesadilla because I don't like cheese. (laughs) Right. So those are examples. And so if we look back at the example of our friend with his cookie, right, he sees a cookie, he jumps up and down and screams. He, his mom gives him a cookie, right? So a setting event for him could be, again, he missed breakfast. Now uh, you could also have setting events that are unrelated, right? So it could be, he's tired. Um, and so, but what's important when you're creating your interventions is that we all kind of know this, right? We put them in our plans. Oh, keep the environment free of distractions. Oh, make sure that they've, you know, had food. Oh, stay within close proximity, right? So we kind of throw these all into the plans. But what's important about this model is that you need to actually look at the behavior chain. So we're not just throwing things at the wall. We're actually looking at like, okay, let me look at this kid and what makes it more likely, what setting event, what thing makes it more likely that this behavior chain is going to happen. And that's the piece we miss yeah, a lot. Or we call it an antecedent intervention, but it's really addressing the setting event. Yeah. And so like a simple antecedent intervention in this case, right, is keep the cookies away. Right. For him, if if the cookies aren't there, then he can't jump up and down and scream because he won't see them. But if that setting event is the same and maybe there's like Rice Krispie treats out or something else, you're still not kind of getting to the root of the issue. Right. And so then if we look at trauma as a setting event. Right. And so let's say he has early food deprivation. So he didn't get fed for a period of time. So he's had lack of food. Then we need to figure out that, right? Because that's going to cause some anxiety. And I I use the term anxiety. We could operationally define it, looking at the physiological responses. I find that to be annoying. 
right? I know that we're supposed to be operationally defining everything, but everybody knows what anxiety means, right? <laughs> and so like, and you know, it, it, we sometimes get stuck in that minutia, right? Yeah. So he has anxiety about whether or not he's going to get food. So then we want to come up with some antecedent interventions to address that. And so while we're making sure we hide the cookies and while we're making sure he eats breakfast, we also want to be addressing that setting event. So things we could do to make sure he's not worried about food are things like making sure he has anytime food. So he's got carrots out all the time, putting up a food chart. So he knows when his next meals are. And so then we're going to help address that anxiety. And so if we do that, we may not even have the issue of him jumping up and down when he sees cookies. Yeah. Because he's I think no that's a, that's a really good example to kind of differentiate the antecedent based interventions from addressing the setting events. Cause I can see how that can get a little gray and like, which is which, but there isn't that important distinction and as you were saying how this is missing from behavior plans, I'm thinking of so many, you know, school district-based behavior plan templates, which are always like so frustrating and horrible, but there is never a space for that. I so rarely see any any note of that on any school-based, you know, FBA behavior plan form, anything like that. Yeah. And then one of the things that's really important about my model also is that when we teach the replacement behaviors, we also teach replacement behaviors to teach the kid to access those setting events. Oh, cool. So, so can you kind of give an example on that? Yeah. So with this kid, he would have his traditional replacement behavior, right? To ask for a cookie. But he would also have a replacement behavior to teach him to go eat the anytime food and to walk over and look at his chart. Mm, yeah. Now, his, right. In theory, we put that in our behavior plans, but we don't really. Right. Like we don't necessarily. We just like have these tools and we're supposed to remember to show them to the kid. But like, we're not really mostly tracking whether or not the child is independently walking over and using these tools that we've put in place. We're keeping it within the control of the adult. Yeah. We're saying post the food chart and then it's just there, but there's no data there or no goals often to have the student walk over and look at his chart or ask for his chart when he's feeling anxious. So giving him some of that, that power and that control mm -hmm. so he can, he can be the one to regulate that. Yeah. And we need to do both. Right. But it needs to go over to his control because if he can't, you know, access that food chart or the calming strategies, the grounding strategies or the mindfulness that we're teaching, then we just have to like follow him around all the time to calm him down and that's not functional. Yeah. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So thinking about, you know, this movement towards trauma-informed ABA, and that was such a great example because I think, you know, it's like simple so you can see all the different pieces, which is great. And how does this relate to maybe the criticism that ABA has gotten, especially over the last few years from the autistic community? 
And how does your model really address some of the disparity that, you know, people were vocalizing against ABA? So, so I think that, so it's complicated, right? Good question. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that um, there are autistic advocates who would look at my model and still say that because it is ABA, it can never, ever be okay. Yeah. Um, Because we still reinforce behavior because some kids still have stickers charts right? Even though we do avoid it for most kids, right? And so, because there are advocates that say, no matter what, no matter what you do for ABA, it can't be better. Um, And I think it's important, though, to follow those people on social media. It's also important not to engage at all. We just need to listen to what they're saying and then look at what the arguments are and apply those to what we do. Um, Because we're not gonna convince autistic people that our therapies are good and we don't need to because there are autistic people who believe that these changes are good, whether or not they're doing it because they think that change is better than nothing or because they believe that change is good. And because, you know, sometimes people just don't like a type of thing, right? Yeah. Some people don't think that chiropractic care is a real useful medical model, right? Some people don't think that mindfulness is a valuable therapeutic strategy, right? And so some people are allowed to not like ABA, <laughs> That's such right. a good point. <laughs> and and so so I think what's important is that we listen to the arguments and we take everything that's possible and apply them. And then what I find is that sometimes the arguments against ABA in in that some autistic people make are incorrect. Right. They'll say something and I'm like, "Mm, no, that's not really right. But it doesn't matter. I do not need to tell that person that what they have said is incorrect because they are an adult and they could research more if they wanted to. And the people who are listening to them have access to Google and the same research articles as the rest of the world. Right. (laughs) And people who are reading what they say can do their own research and they don't need me to tell them what to do. So, uh, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, I that and that's kind of that's kind of what I've done in the last few years. Is I I and it was a, I'm going to admit hard at first to follow a lot of accounts that were were hard for me to follow at first. That was like my my thing too. That like, well, this is my field and what what I'm a practitioner in. But it was really good to just listen. And yeah, there were things that I'm like that I just know that that's not true. But I'm not like a engager like maybe mm-hmm. in life too, but definitely not on social media. And I, so I never kind of engage, but it, it has really been so helpful to listen because I realized, especially a few years ago, I don't know when kind of that bigger shift was or that big, you know, social media push was probably a few years ago. And for so long, and I feel like now guilt for doing this, whenever there was criticism on ABA, I was like, but that's not the ABA I do. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, that's so dismissive. Like, I hate that I did that. You know what I mean? Instead, it's like it's devaluing what someone says. And so that led to a big shift in how I respond too. that, like, I want to hear what 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 happened to you and and what was wrong. And that led to a big a big shift in how I listen and how I respond. And then, you know, changes come after that. But I definitely hated that for many years. I was like, oh, no, that's not me. It doesn't apply to me. And it like, well, it does. Yeah, I mean, I still am making changes. Yeah. Like, I still find things in my programming that I'm like, oh, that's a problem. I need to fix it. Um, And so it's constantly a learning. um, And it's going to be a constant learning. And the fact is, right, is that, you know, I have a talk that I give um, that's called There Is No Old ABA. Because the the message, right, is that autistic advocates argue about how bad ABA is. And people go like, oh, no, 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 that's old ABA, <laughs> right? But the fact is, it's not. And if you get on social media, you see that it's not old ABA. Yeah. Like, people are arguing the same old stuff. And, you know, I do things differently. But I still do some of the stuff that autistic advocates don't like. Um, and some of it is because I still need to, you know, I'm still learning. I need to do better. And some of it is just because that is how I ABA. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that I do, be- do believe is best practices. Um, and, but I do my best not to, you know, to listen and not do things, but like the example I gave that, like, you know, some kids do benefit from a sticker chart, even yeah. though, I do almost universally try not to. I try to use the natural environment. Um, but w- when we we say those things, we lose all credibility because we're yeah. just lying. Yeah. It's true. I know. It's it you know and it, it it's good to have this process and I'm glad that you said that too that like you're always learning cuz there's always going to be something new to consider, whether it be from the autistic community, whether it be from other clinicians as well. Like I, I kind of hated when when I was in grad school or even like an, as an early BCBA, there was so much contention between like, oh, well, the OT said this. And I'm like, well, maybe the OT has a good idea, guys. They went to just as much grad school and they have just as many student loans as we do. And, and that always bugged me, maybe from a teacher perspective too, because like that, it's very multidisciplinary. But that there's going to be things from other disciplines we can use, which, you know, your model too is definitely, uh, you know, shows that, that we can learn from other disciplines as well. Yeah. I am so dis, I was so disappointed um, when um, the uh, board took away, allowing us to do CEUs from other um, uh, like, pra- like yeah. practices. Yeah. I don't know if you were a BCBA still then, but for new people, um, we used to be able to get something like 20% of our CEUs from other fields. And it was because there weren't enough CEUs <laughs> in ABA at the time. But like we used to be able to go and go, go to conferences for speech therapy and OT and psychology and get a percentage of our BCBA like CEUs from there. And it was awesome but they don't let us do that anymore. (laughs) Well, Sandra, thank you so much for giving this overview. I think this has been really helpful and you explained it 
in a really concrete way, which I appreciate. Where can people go to learn more from you? You can reach me at my um, website, which is basicsabatherapy.com. And then my email is Sandra, S-A-U-N-D-R-A at basicsaba.com. I'm also on Facebook. Um, I uh, try to be interesting and funny on Facebook. Um, (laughs) And so I'm Sandra Bishop, um, BCBA um, on Facebook. And um, and then um, we have like Instagram and TikTok um, and those are super cute, but I'll post about those on Facebook. So yeah, so look there. You can, I have a handbook, I have the webinars, and then we have our new trauma series, um, which I'm super excited about. And that's all on the website. Great. Well, I will link all of that in the show notes. And I actually have your behave, your trauma bundle in my cart on your website because I want to take those three, two, two courses, three courses, the webinars. Um, so I'm looking forward um, to taking those. Awesome. Yeah, it's... I am really proud of them. They're, 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 they're really awesome. If I do say so myself. Good. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Thanks for listening to the autism helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.